From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. It's Thursday, August 13th. Today, how changes at the U.S. Postal Service could impact the election. Can Democrats turn Arizona blue? And what the hottest city in America is doing to cool off? The Democrats, they want $3.5 billion. Think of it. But now that they're unwilling to approve a bill that gives all of that money, of course, we would never approve an amount like that. And they also want $25 billion additional for the post office, Steve. $25 billion. So on Wednesday, President Trump said the U.S. Postal Service needed more money if it was going to conduct or help conduct the November election through vote by mail. So therefore, they don't have the money to do the universal mail-in voting. But the president himself is the one blocking that funding from reaching the Postal Service. So therefore, they can't do it, I guess, right? Are they going to do it even though they don't have the money? They're asking for the $3.5 billion. I'm Jacob Bogage. I'm a business reporter, and I cover the U.S. Postal Service for The Washington Post. So the issues at the U.S. Postal Service right now stem from two policy changes instituted by the new Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy. The first is he wants them to drastically reduce the amount of overtime hours postal workers uh, are allowed to take. So mail starts piling up. The second issue is if there was a backup of mail or if mail came in late after a letter carrier had already started delivering stuff on their route, the Postal Service would send somebody else to go deliver the rest of that mail. In other words, if it came in that day, it wouldn't sit there. It would go out. And so the Postmaster General has prohibited postal employees from making those extra trips to deliver the mail. It sounds like there are a lot of complicated power dynamics going on here. And I want to understand better who is Postmaster General DeJoy and what's his role in all of this? Postmaster General Louis DeJoy is the new head of the U.S. Postal Service. He took office in June, and he's a former logistics executive. Logistics is the industry of getting stuff from point A to point B. So it's trucking and freight and things like that. His past businesses have had some interaction with the Postal Service. They helped repair and maintain, you know, Postal Service equipment, like the hampers they would use to transport mail and trays and stuff like that, but didn't do a lot of moving the mail itself. He's also a major ally of the president, Donald Trump. He's given $2 million in the past couple of years to Republican causes and Trump political initiatives and political action committees. He's very committed to the president. I'm also curious, you know, in terms of the historical context, how did things get so bad at the USPS outside of DeJoy's recent changes? So the USPS has been in financial trouble for a while. This predates Donald Trump. This predates Louis DeJoy. Paper mail volume is the Postal Service's most profitable product. Volumes of that have been declining 
for a long time. And as that volume declines, so too does their profit. They also are acquired by a 2006 law to prepay healthcare benefits for their retirees. And the Postal Service has a massive workforce, 630,000 people. So that means they're prepaying their retirement benefits for the folks who are working at the Postal Service, but also the folks who used to work at the Postal Service. So the Postal Service has $160.9 billion in debt. Nearly $110 billion of that comes from what they owe retirees, and they already have socked away in the bank. But the Postal Service can't access that money for its operating expenses. So it's kind of stuck. It's got a lot of money in the bank. It can't access it. And the things it uses to generate profit are slowly declining. And what do Postal Service workers have to say about all this? Postal Service workers are furious. They're fed up. The the golden rule at the USPS has always been mail does not pile up. We get the mail out. And now they're being told to do the exact opposite. Allow mail to pile up. It's not your priority to get it out. And there are no options available to you to get it out. So, for example, we're in the middle of a pandemic. People get sick or people have to take care of their children or their elderly relatives. Or, you know, they just can't come into work for some day. Well, if you have a letter carrier in a lot of places now that can't come into work, the route that they're responsible for just doesn't go out. You're not getting your mail because there's no one to assign overtime to. And you can't reassign someone for that route to work overtime hours. You can't make an extra trip to get that mail out the door. Postal service workers are seeing how this is playing out in front of them, uh, and they're devastated by it. The other issue is the amount of packages that are flooding into the postal service. Because we're in the middle of a pandemic, and because everyone's buying their paper towels and their dog treats online, there are so many packages flooding into the postal service And the Postal Service historically is not set up to deal with packages. It's set up to deal with paper mail. And so that's causing a delay, too. We also have an election coming up that's going to heavily rely on the Postal Service. How is this going to play out in November? So how the November election is going to play out is the million-dollar question. The Postal Service says it has the capacity to handle election mail, but then there are also delays at the Postal Service. The Postal Service handles election mail separately from other mail that comes in. They, they don't commingle it. It's not supposed to be caught in backlogs. But then there is concern that the Postal Service could change some of its informal practices so that mail would get delayed. And that's something that congressional Democrats wrote to the Postmaster General about on Wednesday. So there are a lot of issues still up in the air and a lot of ways in which folks are looking to hold the Postal Service accountable or at least get some answers, and they haven't been able to do that yet. While people may be newly energized and excited about the 2020 election, what's ahead feels murky, unclear, and quite frankly stressful because it's difficult to really put into words how this is going to play out. And I'm wondering from your perspective and and your reporting, if there is a sense of what voters can expect coming up in the election. I think it might be a little too early for voters to start creating expectations for themselves, but it's never too early to create a plan to vote. 
And that means knowing how you're going to get your ballot or if you need to apply for an absentee ballot. If you're going to vote in person, can you vote early and avoid lines so you can social distance? If you can't do that, can you get PPE for yourself when you go in to cast a ballot if you have to stand in lines? Do you know for whom you're going to vote? Have you educated yourself? I mean, there's a lot of things voters can do now. Not just preparing for the election, preparing for ways to cast their ballot, but engaging in the political process that could make the way they vote easier. So don't let the anxiety get the best of you. No, and that's really easy to do. It gets the best of me sometimes, and I'm the one reporting the story. But there's a lot of things everybody can do. Wearing a mask, believe it or not, is one of them to make the election go smoother. It's not just up to policymakers and the U.S. Postal Service. Jacob Bogage covers the U.S. Postal Service for The Post. So Dora Chavez is a woman that I met who lives in Mesa, Arizona. She has lived there for as long as she's been alive. She's in her 60s now. And over the course of the last few decades, she has seen this small suburban community outside of Phoenix in Arizona dramatically transform. You know, my neighborhood back in the day was all white. There was no diversity in our neighborhood, but now it's completely Latino, really. Dora is a lovely person, but she's also a whole type of person. She, to my mind, represents the Latina voter who has lived in Arizona for a long time, but who political campaigns and politicians have very often looked right through and and really haven't seen in a meaningful way. I don't think they're really focusing on the Latino right now. She always votes, but she has worried that a lot of people, including her children, also other Latino voters, particularly young ones, that they feel so alienated from the political process that they don't really believe that their vote counts for anything. The younger vote is absolutely vital and important in order to move forward and make the changes that our society needs. She, in our conversation, has mentioned there's a a sense that young voters, particularly young Latino voters, feel so alienated from the political process, so sort of apart from the work that political campaigns do to create a sense of um, inclusion or, or a coalition. And so that sense of alienation contributes, to my mind and, and to Dora's, lower voter turnout, which in turn also convinces campaigns, rightly or wrongly, that they're not worth reaching out to. I'm Jose Del Real, and I'm a national political correspondent for The Washington Post. What are some of the other factors that contribute to whether or not young Latino voters come out and vote? I think it might be valuable to zoom out a little bit to look at 
why these voters are so important in Arizona and in Maricopa County in particular, which is the most populous county in the state and which will, in a very real way, likely decide the presidential election in the state. 31% of Maricopa County residents now are Latino. And since the midterm elections in 2018, an estimated 100,000 Latino voters have come of age. And so what we know is that these voters tend to lean increasingly Democratic. But what we also know is that younger voters need to be invited into the process. My name is Alexis Rodriguez. I am currently 20 years old. And I live in Phoenix, Arizona. I currently work at a nonprofit for Promise Arizona. We've done a lot of door knocking, and I myself have been canvassing um, before before the pandemic. But due to the pandemic, of course, you know that it has been difficult. But I, I always say this: you know, it may be difficult, but it's not going to be impossible. What we've seen time and again is that the campaigns particularly national political campaigns that don't understand the rhythms of life on the ground in Arizona, aren't even really trying to reach these voters. And so part of the problem ends up being that with so little outreach, it's sort of obvious that voters aren't going to turn out for a political candidate if that candidate isn't reaching out to them. So my name is Vanessa Gonzalez, and I am 40 years old, and I live in Gilbert, Arizona. I really wanted Bernie Sanders to make it to the White House, but that didn't happen. Um, and so it's it's sad, but um, I think that our best choice is Joe Biden right now. It also begs the question, if Democrats are not reaching out to this demographic of voters, are Republicans? Actually, in some cases, I've found, and this might be counterintuitive to other reporters, but I've found that Republicans are reaching out to some of these voters, particularly those who live in more rural areas and, you know, middle-aged Latino voters. These are often voters who are religious. And so some of the family values messaging that the Republican Party leans on really does resonate. Latinos as a demographic also are very business friendly. A lot of Latinos have small businesses. And so messaging toward the business community is also an effective mode of outreach. That is not to overstate the amount of support for the Republican Party among Latinos. In Arizona itself, if you look at recent polling, about one in three Latinos are going to vote for the Republican candidate. But that does mean that, you know, two and three are voting for Democrats. And so this is not a demographic group that behaves politically in a monolithic way. And so the messaging and the outreach does have to be sophisticated. But I feel like if they're door knocking, probably we should be doing something more to get our voices heard. I mean, I've seen the commercials, but on the streets, I feel like I haven't seen very much. I'm also wondering what it says about the Democratic Party that they haven't been reaching out to Latinos in Maricopa County and in other areas like it around the nation. One of the things that we have to, I think, understand about Arizona is that this is probably really the first time that it's a presidential battleground state. And so that means that in the past, national Democrats have been less likely to 
put a lot of resources into the state because it likely wasn't going to turn in their favor when it came to the presidential election. They need to come up with something, not necessarily on the streets, but maybe getting in touch with people more on social media or something like that, just to keep it safe. I think that the Latino voice is going to be heard in Arizona and everywhere because I think that we're tired of being quiet and we know that maybe we haven't come out the way we should have before, but I think that we want our voices to be heard and we want to be taken seriously. And so part of the difficulty in reaching out to these voters is the fact that there's no infrastructure in place currently in the state for the party to reach these voters. Voter lists, um, large canvassing efforts, these have not been scaled up to the level that a presidential election is normally operating at in a battleground state. And so the Biden campaign is really relying on the Democratic U.S. Senate candidate in Arizona and also on the work that progressive organizations have been doing over the last 10 years to reach Latino voters. What do you think Maricopa County tells us about our country as a whole and and what we can expect moving forward? I think that Maricopa County shows what the political future of the country looks like in a lot of ways, given what we know about the demographic trajectory of the country. We know already that 20% of people living in the United States are Latino. And the share of the Latino vote nationally is going to continue to grow very quickly in the next 20 years. Maricopa County will in a lot of ways be a test case for what works and what doesn't work when it comes to political outreach. And it could also be a test of what happens if Latino voters show up to the polls in high numbers. Jose Darial is a national political correspondent for The Post. And now one more thing. The hottest city in America is Phoenix, Arizona. It has more than 100 days above 100 degrees every year, and about 200 residents actually die from heat-related causes. You know, it's in the desert, and people there are used to the heat, but there are also things about the construction of the city itself that makes heat worse. Phoenix is a really great example of what scientists call the urban heat island effect. And that's basically the way we construct cities. Having really tall buildings that act as canyons, having lots of black pavement, having factories and highways and all of these sources of heat coming from machinery, they actually can exacerbate and elevate temperatures in an already hot place. I'm Sarah Kaplan and I cover climate for The Post. this heat is not spread equally. Wealthier, leafier neighborhoods that often have, you know, fewer factories and more spread out buildings, more parks and vegetation will actually have lower temperatures than low-income neighborhoods, which often have parking lots, vast amounts of concrete, 
not very many parks and are often located close to sources of heat like highways and factories and rail stations. And that is exactly the case in this community in Phoenix called Edison Eastlake. It's a community of mostly Latino residents living a lot in public housing, and it is incredibly hot there. Only 5% of the community has tree cover, which is much lower than the county average. And the consequences of that mean that the temperatures can be as much as 10 degrees higher in Edison Eastlake than in the wealthier, cooler neighborhoods in other parts of the city. And that's really bad for residents. The heat mortality rate in Edison Eastlake is actually 20 times the county average. And these disparities in who suffers the most from heat aren't accidental. They're often the product of discriminatory policies that shape who lives in what neighborhoods and how many resources those neighborhoods have. A place like Edison Eastlake, which was subject to redlining for many decades, has a lot fewer resources and a lot more of the qualities that can make heat worse. But that doesn't mean its residents are powerless to respond. Edison Eastlake residents really know how to cope with heat. One scientist who studies heat told me that they have PhDs in surviving heat. And for the past few years, residents have worked with the Nature Conservancy and local community organizations on a project called Nature's Cooling Systems, where basically they are evaluating all of the different ways that a community can actually become cooler and stay safe from the threat of heat illness and figuring out which ones work for them and which ones they want to implement. So in Edison Eastlake, residents said that they wanted more parks with shaded talking areas of trees where residents can meet up and have conversations. They wanted to have shade canopies at the bus stops and not just at city bus stops, but also the bus stops where children wait for the school bus. They wanted to have water fountains installed around the community because dehydration is actually a huge contributor to heat illness. And a lot of these solutions came from residents themselves. You know, organizers of the project said that residents had ideas that would not have occurred to them if they had just sort of been doing a top-down approach, that having the ideas for the project come from the people who live in the community and know what is needed and know what the threats are was a really important way of doing it. What's happening in Edison Eastlake is pretty emblematic of work that is going on across Phoenix. The city's mayor, who has an environmental science degree, has said that she wants Phoenix to be the first heat-ready city in America. And she and others in the city government are working on this heat readiness framework, the way of evaluating how prepared are cities for a heat emergency. A major heat wave can shut down the electric grid, it can put a drain on water services, it can affect transportation, and it is a huge health threat. And so it's something that as the climate warms, many cities need to be more prepared for. One thing I think that's really inspiring about what's happening in Phoenix, and particularly what's happening in Edison Eastlake, is that it shows that fighting climate change and adapting to climate change are not just these big, amorphous global issues. Climate change can be very, very local. And that means that people, individuals, community members have power to do something about it. You know, climate change is this big thing up in the sky, but it's also all around us in 
the way we pave our streets, the way we build our buildings, and the way we live our lives. And that's something that we all have control over. Sarah Kaplan writes about the climate for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Nicole Ellis. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.